Um, let me tell you something about Bend, Oregon. <laughs> it's a lot less humid than the East Coast. And uh, if that doesn't sound like it matters that much to you, um, you, should go to, you should go to Philadelphia right now. Um, it's, uh, it's my version of purgatory. Like when, 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 as a human being, you're melting like a popsicle melts, um, then something isn't the way God designed it to be. Um, hey, real quick, here's a quote by Frank Sinatra um, that I kind of have always thought was pretty funny, but it says this. It says, alcohol may be man's worst enemy. Alcohol may be uh, man's worst enemy, uh, but the Bible says to love your enemy. <laughs> alcohol may be man's worst enemy, but the Bible says to love your enemy. And uh, there's something about Scripture that gives permission uh, and authority. And last week really went kind of big picture. Uh, if, if you don't like big picture, if you don't like philosophy, you probably, probably didn't like last week. But it was, it was really wrestling with those kind of um, abstract concepts of truth and authority and what that really looks like. And what I want to do is kind of drill down a little bit beneath that. We talked last week why truth matters. Uh, C.S. Lewis, if you want to pick up a short book, does this better than anybody in a book called The Abolition of Man. And he basically says when you get rid of a worldview that, that gives rise to virtue and then still expect to see virtue in society, you've, you've got a real uh, kind of inconsistent uh, worldview. It's just not going to work. And his famous phrase was that we castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. It's just one of those most kind of powerful sentences where he boils it down and says, we're looking for virtue in society, but we can't get it because of what we've already done with the, with the nature of truth, how we talk about truth. So truth matters in terms of the big picture, in terms of our worldview. It matters when we look at nature. Martin Luther said, God writes the gospel not in the Bible alone, but also on trees and in the flowers and clouds and stars. Um, there's truth, there's the gospel, there's the good news, there's how we can come to know God in his very creation. And then more specifically this morning, talking about the Bible as a foundation, not only of truth, um, God's word to the believer, not only of truth, but as a means of grace. And that phrase, means of grace, means it's a... It's a a place we go for sustenance. It's a place we go to be shaped, to have our hearts shaped, to connect with God uh, and to be pointed that way. So when I first started diving into scripture at age 22, uh, I came across a quote of D.L. Moody's that Howard Hendricks used to talk a lot about. And D.L. Moody had kind of on the front page of his Bible, the inscription that, that Sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. Sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. Howard Hendricks, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for a long time, was one of the professors that Ed Underwood had when he was down there, but he was famous for his discipleship of students and famous for his how to read the Bible class, basically helping people go deeper into Scripture uh, this morning, by the way, we, we ordered some uh, 20, 30 different kinds of Bibles, or at least copies of Bibles, and a whole bunch of copies of books all around Scripture. So we have kids' Bibles back there, study Bibles, different translations, different sizes. But this is a morning, I think, of, of any morning we've had in 10 years, where if you want to, you can equip yourself uh, or, or grab the resources you need to walk out and go deeper in scripture. Um, we have 10 copies of this book, Living by the Book. That's Howard Hendricks, his famous. He took his seminary course and basically wrote it for the layperson. And it's one of the most profound books that you can read just for, for helping you understand scripture as more than just words on paper, but something that we have a, a, a vital relationship with. Scripture is a means of grace. So let's get started. Um, what is the Bible? What is the Bible? Uh, the Greek word here, you had uh, ta hagia uh, biblia, basically holy books. The word biblia was books, and you had the word holy, which is hagia, and that was the Greek phrase for uh, the holy books. Um, 
the thought was that the Greek word biblia came from biblikas, which was an ancient Phoenician port where uh, papyrus, which was used for paper, was shipped from Egypt to Greece. And so kind of this idea of books on paper took the name of this, this, this port down in, in uh, ancient Phoenicia, that, that kind of region of the world. And that's where we get the word Bible. And so um, because of books. Now this kind of sense of the old English going into modern English and us just using the word Bible, it, it over time just came to be a substitute for the more historical word of scriptures, so holy scriptures. So when we read the Bible, we actually uh, don't see Bible so much as we see the word scriptures. It is written in the scriptures, the scriptures say. So the more historical or ancient word of talking about God's kind of revelation to us was his revelation to us in the scriptures, the holy scriptures, and then eventually the holy books, and then eventually the Bible, which kind of is shorthand for all that. The Bible that you probably have with you has 66 books in it, and it is divided between the Old Testament, which is the, the Bible, or more specifically the scriptures uh, of the Jewish people, and the New Testament, which is the New Covenant, or the writings of Jesus and his apostles, which for Christians completes all of scripture, uh, both the old and the new. So we have the same shared Old Testament, and then Christians would bring forward the New Testament as well. The Old Testament starts with five books called the Pentateuch, which is the five books of Moses. And then it goes into the history books uh, and carries that forward up until you get to uh, the Psalms and the Proverbs, book of Ecclesiastes, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, what's known as wisdom literature. Uh, if you really like uh, philosophy, if you like thinking about life, if you like the movie The Dead Poet Society, and you've never read the book uh, of Ecclesiastes, do yourself a favor, go home and read it. It's, it's, it's amazing um, how deep and rich that book is in exploring those kind of themes of, of life and what does it mean to live well and what are we here for. And the first time I read that book, I was like, how come I didn't know this was in the Bible? I've got to save myself a lot of time. So read, read Ecclesiastes. But all that forms what's known as wisdom literature. Uh, and then it goes into the prophets. And the prophets are arranged by size. So the biggest books first uh, except for Lamentations, which is put by Jeremiah because the authorship of Lamentations is thought to be the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, and then it goes on all the way. So the major prophets and then the minor prophets, much smaller, carries it all the way through uh, to Malachi. And then we get to um, the New Testament. The New Testament is grouped by the Gospels first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John is thought to be the latest one that was written at the end of John's life. It's also very different than the other three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels because they share a lot of the same verses. In other words, there was oral tradition and probably even written traditions of the works and the words of Jesus that were circulating in, in Christian circles to Christian communities. And so those kind of written records or oral records were then codified as Matthew and Mark and Luke kind of filled out their stories. So they share all of this material uh, together, especially since Mark and Luke uh, weren't one of the 12. They were borrowing from those authoritative sources. And then John kind of just breaks off and does his own narrative. Uh, then you see the book of Acts, the history book. And then again, by size of Paul's letters, Romans, 1 Corinthians on down. Uh, and then you see the letters of uh, James and John and Peter, the book of Hebrews, and then the book of Revelation, which finishes kind of scripture. So it's 66 books spanning 2,500 years. And that's what many of you, if you have this in front of you, we would call the Bible. Now, the question really becomes, how do those books that we have kind of in this book, how do those books actually become authoritative? Like, why would I submit to those books? Why would I take what they say to be serious or, or to be the authoritative word of God? Why those books and not some other books? Um, and so, like, what really is the test of... Uh, what would be called canonicity, that, that this is actually one of the standard-bearing books. Like, you always heard that somewhere in Washington, D.C., there's in a temperature-controlled room. I heard this. I've never seen it. 
um, but a temperature controlled room that has like an actual foot, like not like a human foot, but something that measures a foot. And that is the standard for what a foot is. Anyone ever hear that story growing up? Or am I the only one? Um, I don't know if it's actually true anymore now that I think about it. Uh, I didn't have Google when I was a kid. So when my mom would tell me things, my mom's not here today so I can talk like this. Like, so when she would tell me things, like, you just, you didn't have any way to fact check it. So there might not be an actual thing that represents a foot, but assuming there is, then that is the standard authoritative. Everything else gets judged by that, right? So the canon, uh, that word, that concept is the same thing, that, that these are the authoritative true um, works or words, and everything else then gets kind of compared to or has to stand next to those ones. So how come these books? Um, we could spend a whole series talking about how we develop our Christian ideas or notions around the authority of Scripture, but for the interest of time today, I'm going to just give you a couple things here that kind of um, triangulate it. The first one is simply this. The Jewish people uh, always had that view. We, as Christians, we come out of um, the Jewish faith. That background is a part of our shared history. And for the Jewish people, the Jewish people are always a people of the book. And they believed these to be the written records, uh, that time had, had proven it, that God had spoken to these people, the things that they had said had come true. Uh, the, the other competing prophets, if, he, if you'd like, had said things that didn't come true, didn't stand the test of time. But these were the books, the Old Testament, that the Jewish people always took as authoritative being the word of God. So we, we inherit and borrow from that right from the get-go. Jesus confirms this too. When we see Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus is always confronting people with their notion of God, their notion of truth, what they, they believe, how they're acting. <clears throat> things they're saying to him, and he's saying, don't you know it is written? Don't you know how it is written? Don't you know where it is written? But he's always referring to what is written. Jesus didn't just say, you're barbaric, you've got bad ideas, you're dumb people, I think you have bad hearts, uh, you're idiots, you're stupid. Like Jesus didn't just attack the person um, because he disagreed with them or they disagreed with him, he always took them back to the standard, to the canon, to the authority, and said, you guys are interpreting this wrong. Don't you know that it is written um, that, that this should be a certain way? Or you're being selective in your reading. You're loving only the people that love you back, but don't you know that, that it is said that you should love um, all these people this way, that your neighbor really includes the foreigner, and the orphan and the widow, not just your clan or your tribe. And so Jesus was always saying it is written. He was using scripture as the barometer for what is true. And, and his highest level of arguments, even in his, his basic teaching to his students or his followers, 74 times in the New Testament, we see the phrase, it is written, 74 times. Um, Mark 14, 9, if you want to turn to one of these, we can just take a peek. Mark 14, 9, Mark is in the New Testament, one of the Gospels. Um, this isn't one of the it is written ones. This is actually one of the ones pointing forward that I wanted to show you. It's an interesting thing that Jesus is pointing back to it is written, and then Mark 14, 9, the woman comes in, Mary comes in, and anoints him with very expensive perfume, nard on his head, drips down, and fills the room with fragrance. And the disciples are immediately counting the cost. Um, this is so, so expensive. Shouldn't, we have, shouldn't she have uh, given that to us? We could have sold it. We could have had the money, and it would have been a lot funner for us to figure out how that money was going to be used. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? <clears throat> she has done a beautiful thing to me. I think... There's oftentimes a lot of times where Jesus would say that today of Christian leaders or pastors like myself, that Jesus would look at someone like me in reference to what somebody is doing and he would say to me, stop bothering her. Um, there's something about how Jesus takes the pure and the simple and just, and just says, let it be and don't parse it and don't try and uh, judge it, don't try and control it, don't try and steer it. 
And Jesus says, you're always gonna have the poor with you, but you're not gonna always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Now, Mark 14, nine, truly I tell you, uh, by the way, if it was the Latin, it would be verily, verily. If it was the Greek, it would be amen, amen. Um, the, the idea is we always say amen at the end of a prayer, which is may it be so. That's kind of what it means. Um, verily, verily, amen. May it be so. Jesus always started with that word. Uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't talk and then say, I, you know, I hope it would be so. Jesus would always start with, with kind of the truly I tell you, the verily, the amen at the front, and then he would speak truth. Kind of a fascinating pivot. But he says, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So this verse to me is really profound for, for two reasons. One, Jesus is saying there was a written record of a story of how God has worked. And now he's saying in, into all the world is going to go the, the continuation of that story. Wherever the good news, wherever the gospel, wherever, wherever my story is, is told or preached, this story of what she did that purity of devotion is going to go with it. So Jesus is now foreshadowing the writing of the New Testament. So he's lending credence to the writing of the story by his followers as it goes forward. Here's the, um, here's the second interesting thing. That wherever it goes, Jesus said, what this woman uh, did should be told. So there's two interesting things that come out here. If I'm going to talk about the good news, I'm duty bound by this verse to talk about this woman. It also is the foreshadowing of the writing of the story that's gonna be the New Testament. Uh, Paul, interesting, Second Peter, turn there. Second Peter 3.15, we might have some of these verses on the screen for you. Second Peter 3.15, I think the next verse is gonna be on the screen. Second Peter 3.15 uh, is interesting. It's much more interesting than First Peter 3.15. Um, 2 Peter 3.15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. And then Peter goes and closes this short letter that we know as Second Peter. So bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Now he writes this way in all his letters, meaning Paul has lots of letters uh, with the wisdom that God gave him. His letters contain some things that are really hard to, to, to deal with, as do all the other scriptures. So interesting thing here, Peter, the apostle, kind of the foremost leader in the church at that point in time, is writing and basically saying of, of, the, of Paul, who didn't follow Jesus around but came later, he's saying what Paul is writing in the wisdom that God has given him, like the other scriptures, is a certain way. So it's one of the verses that we use as Christians to say, you've got Peter including Paul's letters in his description of what makes up the word of God, what makes up the story for us um, that we can go to. Now, Paul himself in 2 Timothy has this to say when he's um, talking to Timothy, who's kind of the person that he's discipling to be a pastor and a church planter. He says to Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 14 uh, through 17, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have uh, become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work." I hear a lot of people come to me and go, I just want to know what God's call on my life is. Like, I just want to know his calling. Like, what's his calling for me? Who am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? And very, 
seldom does the Bible come up as a relevant thing in helping people both discern, understand their calling, and be equipped to go live out that life that they're hoping they can live, the life that God has for them. Interesting thing here, I'll read it again, is that he's talking about Timothy who has known the scriptures from his infancy, from the time he was a child, which are able to make you wise for salvation. They lead you to God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now all scripture is God breathed, it comes from God, God inspires it, it's his word, his canon, his standard, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It's gonna help you uh, be formed in the right, by the way, the word here is justice, Dick Asuno, justice, righteousness, those two words are synonymous, I, I, we've talked about that a number of times, but it's, it's good for training in justice, what it means to be um, put together correctly, to have a right relationship with God, self, others, and creation, to be right and just, okay? This book is going to help you be formed in that way so that you as a servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This book is going to equip you for the things that you do, the actions you do, the love you're going to share in your life as you move forward. This book has everything to do, not only with understanding God, but coming to understand yourself. Um, so how do we know that this book is authoritative? There's a lot of things we can go to, and they, they help begin to shed light on that. We can also take it too far. Uh, turn to John 17. John chapter 17. You'll read here... Um, I'll just read the whole paragraph. But this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's on the hill before he's betrayed by Judas. He's praying. This is when his disciples fall asleep. And Jesus starts by praying this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all the people that he might give eternal life to all those that you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work uh, that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Um, skipping down just a little bit. Um, to verse 17. So chapter 17, verse 17 now. Uh, Jesus' kind of prayer takes this injunction and it says sanctify them, meaning separate them out, help them become holy, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For, for them I sanctify myself, I set myself apart to your work, O God, that they too may be truly sanctified. In other words, I'm setting myself apart to the death that you've, you've ordained for me to have on the cross. I'm setting myself apart to that work so that they too might become holy or set apart unto you, God. Interesting verse here, though, that has to do with how a lot of people take scripture to be authoritative or true, is that phrase, um, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. My last year of seminary, I had to take beginning theology, and I had been there almost seven years, uh, getting a philosophy degree and, and a religion degree. And I had to go back and take uh, beginner theology, what was called Theology 101, because people used to really title classes in boring ways. Um, that was something about Kilns College that we did from the very beginning was classes have to make you want to take the class. Um, why, why would anything Theology 101 make you want to like learn about it, which is a shame because we're talking about the, the beginning of coming to understand what it means to have knowledge of God. Like, we've got to be able to title that better. Anyways, um, taking Theology 101, and the professor, I won't say who he is, but the professor was the venerable saint of the school. He'd been there 40 years, and he was in his late 70s. He was the mentor to most of the other professors in, in uh, the seminary, okay? And his way of doing tests was really interesting. He would give you a question and an answer, and you had to rehearse or memorize the answers. And then when you'd go in for the test, you'd get the question, and it was basically you know, testing your memory 
with the idea that you had actually learned it well enough to kind of be able to do it without any mistakes. So the question that was given for, for one of the earlier tests, and we were going through the doctrines of God, and we got to the doctrines of Scripture, and he wanted to help us have verses to prove that the Bible was inerrant and, and uh, infallible. Those are two words that get used for the authority of Scripture. And so the question he gave us on the study sheet was, how do we know that the, the Bible is the inerrant word of God? Answer, John 17, 17. Um, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, I flipped out and, and went and talked to him, which became a, a very big discussion, which became a semester-long debate, which spilled out to other professors and was one of the reasons um, I was persona non grata by the time I left seminary. Um, and I'm, I'm overstating, my, wife, my wife's here somewhere. I'm way overstating it. People liked me. Um, However, I, I was that guy that, that had a hard time because truth mattered to me. Like, so when, when truth matters to us and we see things that are untrue and that we're passing those on in, in a seminary context, that, that seems really problematic to me. Why is that problematic? Uh, well, the word here, sanctify them by your truth, uh, your word, logos, is truth. Well, there's a word for scriptures, it's called graphos, and, and the variants of that all throughout the New Testament, 74 times um, for scriptures, actually, uh, it is written as 74 times, scripture shows out uh, in the New Testament way more than, than 74, but there's a, a word for that. There's a, there's a Greek word when, when they're talking about scriptures, and, and the word uh, graphos means scriptures or writings, okay? That's what that Greek word means, and the word logos means word, statement, or message. Word, statement, or message. Interesting thing is, it gets used even more in a specific way to refer to Jesus or the second person of the Trinity when it says in the beginning of John, and you can turn there real quick, but uh, the book of John, the Gospel of John, begins by saying, in the beginning was the word, logos, and the word, logos, was with God, and the word, logos, was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Interesting thing, John is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. There's a bunch of churches around Ephesus, and, and that is kind of the area where, where he spends his later life. It's a church that Paul planted, but it's where John kind of comes to, to be. Uh, rumor has it that, that Jesus' mother Mary even went and stayed there for a time, possibly even died there, because remember, Jesus had looked at John and said, uh, this is now your mother, and then he looked at his mom and said, this is now your son. So you've got an elderly John around the town of Ephesus. Now, interesting thing, hundreds of years before, the, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus was from Ephesus. And Heraclitus had this view of creation, the creation of the world, a very specific formula that he created, philosophical formula, where he talked about the logos or the divine wisdom that was the ordering principle of the world. In other words, the logos, the ordering principle of the world, the divine wisdom was the thing that created the world and by it was the world created. So now let me read this again. Why does John, a Jewish fisherman, talk all crazy about Greek words like logos. Well, just think about it in the context to, to who he's writing to. You have a people that have a basic worldview and philosophical understanding of the world, and John's like, let me tell you, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word logos was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has not been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Then we go into the story, and he testifies to the true light, but he was not the true light. And then John brings about how Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, who is God, comes down and walks amongst us. And, and just like Paul says, in Jesus, all things were created. So you have this interesting thing. The word logos means, just in normal conversation, 
word, statement, or message. In a, in a very philosophical place like Ephesus, it can mean the divine wisdom of God, right? Um, or the second person, the Trinity, Jesus, kind of in a Christian context. When Jesus, before any books of the New Testament have been written, says to the disciples, or is praying, um, and, and he's praying to God, and he says, God, sanctify them by your truth. Your logos is truth. He's either meaning uh, the life and ministry of Jesus. Again, that, that verse, sanctify them by your truth, is in the Gospel of John, where he's used the word logos already in this kind of a way. So, so Jesus is either saying, sanctify them by your logos, or, or your logos is truth. He's either meaning kind of my message that I bring as the person, the second person of the Trinity, or John, when he's writing this, is meaning the more common usage, which is the message of God. God, your, your truth, your message, your kind of statement that's being made here is true. It's very different than saying the scriptures are true and without error. Those are just two totally different concepts. And so I... I I was sitting in this class and, and had a real problem with, with using bad information to argue for a conclusion that I actually believe. Because if we use bad information to argue for a conclusion I believe, sooner or later someone's going to pick the holes in it and, and they're going to they're gonna dismiss the conclusion that scripture is authoritative because they've dismissed the argument. And so we went back and forth with the, the professor and I and then it spilled out and basically I won the argument, okay, because, because the only, even if this meant that, that what John was referring to was the scriptures or the Bible, at the most, it referred only to the Old Testament because there was nothing in the New Testament that had been written yet. Does that make sense? So if you're going to grant the premise of the argument that it's talking about the writings, which it's not, um, then the writings it's talking about are the Old Testament that exist. And so this verse, the way it was being phrased on this test, um, how do we know that the Bible, meaning both Old and New Testament, is, is inerrant and infallible? Answer, um, Jesus, John 17, 17, saying, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. The, that, that answer does not fully satisfy that question. Does that make sense? I ended up, I won, I won the argument, right? Um, but what, you want to know what was on the test the next semester? Same question, same answer. Look, I care about truth. I don't care if I'm wrong. You, you point it out to me, um, and, and I'll change. I usually will. I do often. I, I'm wrong a lot. You can talk to Tamara. Um, she's very gracious and she, she, she's gracious enough to know that I'm growing old enough to now know often when I am wrong and she doesn't, she can just let me kind of self-correct, right? <laughs> but, but truth matters. We, we need to get it right in seminary. We need to get it right in our churches. We need to get it right in our homes, but if we, if we play fast and loose with truth, I don't think we're going to garner the respect from the world that we hope to have as Christians. Anyways, so how do we know the scriptures are true? There's ways that we can triangulate it. The Jewish view of the Old Testament, Jesus' view of, of the scriptures and his use of it is written, his pointing forward to how he anticipated that things would be told about him and this woman that, that put the perfume on him. Paul's writings, as it shows up in 2 Peter, uh, Paul himself talking about all the scriptures and what the use is for that. And so we find that there's this view of the, the scriptures being authoritative. Now, the interesting thing, uh, as we now switch gears, we come to the early Reformation. Early Reformation, bit of history. Uh, you had Const uh, Constantine, the emperor in the early 1300s. He legalizes Christianity or legal, the Edict of Milan in 13, uh, 313 allows for the freedom of religion, which later then moves to religion be, being the, 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 uh, the state religion, the religion of empire. But in 313, he's fighting a battle at the Bridge of Milan, and he sees a sign of a cross, and here's this message in a dream, in this sign you will conquer. By the way, if you're a Christian and you have a lot of crosses around, this is when the cross becomes 
an object of pride. The cross had been used a little bit in Christianity, but it wasn't until Constantine saw the image of the cross and, and conquered in that sign and then began to use that as his official kind of uh, religious emblem that the cross that we really revere today as a symbol really gets going. Before that, what was the, the symbol that was kind of the most dominant symbol in the early church? Ichthus, the fish. Um, so 313 establishes that you can have Christianity as a religion uh, and and then a little bit later uh, legalizes it as the kind of official state religion. But Constantine moves the capital from Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, from Rome to Constantinople, builds a new city, which is now, today, modern-day Istanbul in Turkey. So if you go to Istanbul, that is Constantinople. And what begins to happen is you have Latin more and more being spoken in Italy and what's called the West, and Greek being more and more a part of uh, Constantinople and the East. And these two, uh, these two locusts kind of, because the, the head of the, the church is in Rome, the power of empire is in Constantinople, and you begin to see this difference emerge, and the two begin to have friction, and they begin to go separate ways, which eventually in the year 1000-ish uh, uh, leads to what's called the Great Schism where East and West break, like they break. It's like a bad family break where you stop talking to each other. Um, so East is now East. That's the Eastern Orthodox Church. That's why in Russia, in the Baltics, in the East, you have the, the Eastern Orth Orthodox Church. And the West becomes the Catholic Church, okay? Uh, and so those two things are separate. One has the Greek language, one has the Latin language. So what's the Bible that the Catholic Church uses? If they're predominantly speaking Latin and they're losing the ability to speak Greek because you don't have that same kind of trade language anymore, what's the Bible that they use? Anyone know? The, oh, on fire. Um, Latin Vulgate, written by Jerome, Saint, who's now known as St. Jerome. But the Latin Vulgate is a late 300s edition of the Bible, uh, which has taken the Septuagint and other kind of versions of Scripture and putting it into Latin. Okay, it's known as the Latin Vulgate. And this book increasingly becomes, over time, the predominant uh, Bible that is used by the Western Church, which is the Catholic Church, right? And so as you get to the 1300s, um, and you're talking about what would someday become known as Germany, but was more of like the Holy Roman Empire, and you're talking about France, and you're talking about England, they don't speak Latin. Your average person does not speak Latin. They certainly don't read Latin, right? So a guy comes along in the, the 1300s by the name of John Wycliffe, and Wycliffe begins to read the Bible and study the Bible, uh, and he says, the Bible is the authoritative word of God. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's, it's the scriptures, it's the canon, it's the standard. Every person... It, it's a means of grace that leads you unto salvation and, and knowledge you know, of, of faith in Christ. Every person, even a plowman, should be able to have a copy of the Bible with them. So that was Wycliffe's big thing, is the clergy have taken over, they're corrupt, the Pope is corrupt, uh, a lot of these doctrines don't even really make sense with what Scripture says, and so we need to take Scripture and get it into the language of the common man, and every person, even a plowman, should be able to have a copy of the Bible and read it for themselves. Here's a quote from, uh, did you see the picture of Wycliffe or no? There's Wycliffe, um, the first hipster. Um, so that's Wycliffe, and, uh, and Wycliffe says, it's one of his many quotes, no man is to be credited for his mere authority's sake unless he can show scripture for the maintenance of his opinion. So in other words, Wycliffe has a very high view of the authority of Scripture, and so he's even challenging the church and saying, you guys have these opinions of things, these ways of doing things, these ways of believing, but show me in Scripture where that's true. So this is, this is where the Reformation really begins, even though it wasn't until the 1500s that it actually happens. So Wycliffe is called the morning star of the Reformation. Now, he would have lost his life 
if it wasn't for the fact that you had a pope and an anti-pope, two, two popes fighting over who's the, the real pope. And so a little guy off in England was able to kind of, uh, even though he was being censored or, or they were really upset at him and they were writing papal bulls against him, he, they just weren't that concerned with him, right? The, the church and the hierarchy of the church was concerned with kind of uh, fighting out who's gonna win between these two um, popes. Does that make sense? So he's able to die of natural causes. However, in the early 1400s, uh, there's the Council of Constance. I think it's 14, or, uh, 1415 or 1418, the Council of Constance. And the Pope at that time then, wanting to really reestablish authority, condemns Wycliffe, even though he's already dead. And by condemning him, uh, what you're basically doing is stripping away any kind of right he has from the, being a member of the church to enter into heaven. So they go dig up his bones, they go burn his bones, and why do they burn his bones? Um, because what would you have done if he was living and, and they had declared him a heretic? You would have burned him at the stake. Why do you burn him at the stake? Seems barbaric. Because in John 15, it says, remain in me, any branch that does will bear fruit, but if you do not remain in me, you will wither and dry up, and those things are only good for gathering up and burning. So the, the medieval church's idea of this was the church is like Jesus, it's the body of Christ, and if you remain in the church, you bear fruit, but if you become a heretic and go away and become wayward, the only thing that's, that's good for you now is to gather you up and burn you. So burn at the stake. Uh, by the way, this is a form of capital punishment, and it was believed that if if capital punishment should happen if you murder someone, if I murder you and I lose my life because of, you know, one life deserves a life, how much more should I, uh, should I bear the penalty of death if I'm killing your soul? Not your material body, but your soul through heresy or the souls of many people. So even the later reformers, Calvin and Zwingli, stood by while they would kill Anabaptists and others for believing in believer's baptism. They called them uh, rebaptizers. So, you know, uh, you're sprinkled as an infant, and the Anabaptists believed that you needed to be rebaptized. And so, Calvin, Zwingli, etc., called them uh, rebaptizers. And, and they would warn them, you know, to, those, to their credit, they would warn these Anabaptist preachers don't come into our city. Zwingli warned them don't come into Zurich. And then when they come into Zurich, Oh, we're sorry, we warned you, but you're leading people astray. You're putting their souls at risk. And so there's actually a plaque if you go to Zurich where in the middle of the river, there's a little sandbar, but that's where they took and gave people, these Anabaptists, what is, what is now known as the third baptism. You know what the third baptism is? Death by drowning. In other words, we're gonna give you the, the death penalty which is kind of a, a state penalty, um, corporate kind of thing. But we're going to do it symbolically because of what it is that you were doing that was so bad. And so we tie a bunch of weights around you, give you the third baptism. So it's not just the Catholic Church that would kill heretics. Medieval times and then into, into the Renaissance Reformation era, this was what, what well-intentioned people that had state and religion go together how they would try and parse out this whole idea of how to, how to work with heresy. So Wycliffe, his followers were called the Lollards. By the way, so his bones were burned because he would have been burned if, if he was alive. Then the skull was scraped on the forehead to symbolically remove the, the oil that they would have given him his last rites with when he died. And then, uh, or they scraped it, then burned because uh, it turned to ashes after burning. So scraped the forehead, burn the bones, and then disperse them into the, the River Swift there in England so that nobody could, could take a relic. Because he had followers, they were known as the Lollards, and they didn't want Wycliffe to become some kind of a martyr. Fast forward, uh, you end up with other people trying to do what Wycliffe tried to do. Jan Hus uh, was kind of the next guy, and he got burned at the stake. Uh, and eventually, you end up with this guy in Germany by the name of Martin Luther, and he had a protector uh, called uh, Frederick the Wise in a town called Wittenberg. And so, you know, nobody could really get to him because Frederick had control and Martin Luther was his prized professor. And so it allowed Luther to kind of explore this. But what was happening was 
Uh, ever since the fall of Constantinople, I got a picture for you. So this is 1452, 53, I think 1453. The fall of Constantinople by the, uh, the Ottomans as the Ottoman Empire moved forward. And that's eventually when you get uh, Constantinople turning into Istanbul. Uh, when this happens, and it was something that was happening over time, like it, you know, a year or two, and then the, the last siege, a number of months. So it's something that happened over time. A lot of the scholars fled from there, uh, and they brought their manuscripts with them. What kind of scholars were they? Latin or Greek scholars? Greek scholars. So you have a lot of scholars fleeing from here, going to the West. And so for the first time now, you see the conversation beginning to happen again with Greek ideas, Greek manuscripts, in fact, actual ancient manuscripts of the New Testament in the language that the New Testament was written in. And so as these come into Italy and then up into Germany, it, it's a part of how the Renaissance gets sparked. But also you end up with guys reading in the, in the Greek what the Bible actually said, not reading the Latin translation of the Greek, but reading it in the Greek. And they begin to question, again, the church's authority, the corruptness that we see in the church, uh, and this idea that somehow the, the people, not priests, but people need to be able to read this Bible in their own language. So you have Martin Luther, 1517, nailing his objections to the church, on the, uh, to, to the bigger church, on the church door there, castle church door in Wittenberg. And then he goes off and hides because his life is under threat and ends up writing the German New Testament. He holds himself up in a castle, uh, in a place called, uh, the castle's called the Wartburg Castle, outside of Eisenach, which is where uh, Bach was born. And in this castle, he, no one even knows whether he's alive or dead, he writes out the German New Testament. And in doing so, sets the German language, the written German language, for hundreds of years. A lot of these people that translated the Bible into their languages ended up, without realizing it, setting the language for those countries. Same thing with William Tyndall uh, in England. And so you, you now have this interesting thing going on, uh, people trying to put the Bible into the vernacular of, of the everyday person so that they can begin to read the doctrines of salvation for themselves and begin to experience how God speaks through Scripture and as it rolls forward. Now, the interesting thing um, after this development, this Reformation idea of what's called sola scriptura or Scripture alone, that Scripture alone is the authority, not the, not the church and not tradition, but scripture alone is authoritative for telling us how we're going to form ourselves as churches, live our lives as Christians, etc. That the counter-reformation that happens at the Council of Trent in the 1560s um, really has to answer this question, what is scripture? Because the reformers rejected the Latin Vulgate, and the Latin Vulgate contained five books called the Apocrypha. The, has anyone uh, heard of the Apocrypha? Grew up most a lot of people. So the Apocrypha are five books that end up in uh, St. Jerome's translation of the Bible. And over time, ideas in the Apocrypha, like purgatory, ideas in the Apocrypha have begun to take root in the church. And those are like, those are sacred views now to the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church has to answer the question, uh, what is the authoritative Bible? They'd never done that at a council. They'd never done that officially anywhere. It was kind of an unofficial thing. And so they come back and they say, no, the Latin Vulgate is the official version of the Bible, which includes these five books. So you take your 66, you pump, uh, pump it up to 71. Uh, there's another one you could argue about that would take the 72 or whatnot, but basically five more books. And they're saying, no, this is the authoritative thing. So for the Catholic Church, the Latin Vulgate became, became the, the recognized, official, approved by a council version of the Bible. And the reformers were now taking the Greek version uh, or the Hebrew and Greek version of 66 books and they were translating it into the everyday language, the vernacular of people around the world. So you go two different directions. I could go into it a little bit more at length, but why do we not believe in the Latin Vulgate if we're a part of uh, a Protestant church? Um, ideas that you don't see anywhere else in Scripture, like purgatory that shows up in 2 Maccabees. Doctrines um, 
other doctrines that aren't found in scripture being saved by works. So you have the book of Tobit for almsgiving, uh, almsgiving, charitable giving for almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. So somehow you get forgiveness of sins through almsgiving. Prayers for the dead shows up in Baruch. Uh, you, have, you have things that are never cited in the New Testament. Uh, we never see it is written referring to one of these uh, apocryphal books. By the way, the dating of the apocryphal books shows up between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So they, they predate the New Testament, but you never see one of those books officially, possibly alluded to, but never officially um, recognized as it is written. Uh, they're missing from the early lists of the Bible uh, of what is the authoritative text. There was lists that would kind of cycle. It was missing from that. The biggest one to me, the Apocrypha was never recognized by uh, the Jewish uh, faith as being a part of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, and again, as Christians, we come out of that. We, we take our marching orders in some sense with regard to the Old Testament from the Jews. And so the Apocrypha was never recognized by, by Jews uh, as being authoritative in that same kind of way. And so um, we end up on different tracks as Protestants uh, and as Catholics with, in some sense, a little bit different books. And with Catholics saying that this book only makes up one uh, leg of a three-legged stool with the other legs being the authority of the church and the authority, which means the Pope's power and authority and the history or tradition. So all of the councils, all of the things that other popes have said leading up to that time. If anyone ever asks me, why am I not a Catholic? I simply say, because you have to go no further than to look at the Renaissance popes that had kids out of wedlock all over the place, were corrupt as all get out, were buying offices, and were saying things on behalf of God that were self-motivated or simony, if a way of, of benefiting their families, giving offices to people in their family who were purchasing them from them, and saying if church tradition really is one of the ways of, of determining authority, that, that just breaks it for me. Um, I also don't believe that when Jesus said, you're Peter on this rock, I will build my church, that he meant that there was going to be a succession of Peters that were going to have absolute authority for the keys of the kingdom. I actually just simply think he meant, Peter, you're the apostle that's going to be the evangelist that's going to go to different people and get this thing going. I have different reasons. I love the current pope. Uh, I would take the current pope and what he's teaching over, and I'm making this number up on the spot, a lot <laughs> of Christian variants, uh, pr uh, Protestant variants or, or denominations. So I think... Uh, it's in, in a lot of ways we can benefit and learn from each other and in a lot of ways the core teachings of the nature of God and, and his call for his followers remains true between Catholics and Protestants and I think sometimes it's good to have that conversation about what we have in common rather than trying to parse out what we have that's different. So in conclusion, um, there's different ways of reading this Bible. Um, oh, we don't have a ton of time so I'll just say it quick. Greek language specifically is very different than the English language. Um, they put things towards the front of the sentence for emphasis, uh, to, to kind of call out to the reader or the, the listener like, like an emphasized word, like we would italicize or bold a word. So word order gets kind of messed around because of emphasis. And then also their verbs and, and, and other words have so many more declensions or, or ways of of, of saying within the verb itself, who's the one doing it, uh, and, and whether it's past, present, future, that kind of thing. And so it's very hard to translate the Greek literally, word for word, because it, it doesn't read the same in English. So oftentimes people are like, I want the, the closest representation of the Bible to be what I'm reading. So there you go, I want a literal translation of the Bible. But it ends up being very wooden. Anybody ever read the NASB? New American Standard Bible or the ESV or, or some of these things. They're very hard to read because it, it's just not the way we would normally read or talk. There's, that's, so that's called a literal kind of translation. There's another school of thought, which is instead of word for word, it's thought for thought. So it's not word for word, but it's, we're capturing the ideas thought for thought. And that's called dynamic equivalence. So you have a literal way of doing it, and then you have a dynamic equivalence way of doing it. And you have a spectrum, and, and we can put a picture up here, but you have a spectrum of everything in between. Um, 
So I'll read it off my phone because I can't read it up there. And you're not going to be able to either. I just wanted you to see the idea. Uh, but if you look on the left, that's word for word and interlinear, which is literally it shows you the Greek with the translation below it. Then the NASB, New American Standard Bible, the Amplified Bible, the uh, English Standard Version, which is a rather recent one, Revised Standard Version, then the King James, New King James, and you kind of move along. When you get to the middle and you begin to go to the right, you see just to the right the NIV, uh, and then much further to the right you see the NLT, which is the New Living Translation, and then you get all the way to the right and you have Eugene Peterson's The Message, uh, which is really just him trying to capture the heart of Scripture. But uh, which one of these is right? Um, there is no right. These are all translations trying to reflect the teaching of Scripture as faithfully as they can in a way that you're going to be able to understand it. Which one's going to be the best for Bible study? Would I say that by reading Paul and you see the same words show up over and over and you can begin to circle them and go, wow, in the book of Philippians, Paul really likes the word joy. And like, so what's going on there, right? Uh, to do that kind of Bible study, I would recommend the ESV. And we got a bunch of them out back uh, when the service is over. Because you can really look at it and you know the, the words that are going on. In the NIV, you might switch and use a synonym. So if you're trying to circle all the time, say joy is being used, you're going to be thrown off because, it, you know, in readability, it ends up being a synonym in some other place. Does that make sense? So if you're trying to study the Bible, ESV would be great. If you're trying to read the Bible or, or get your kids to, to start in the beginning and go all the way through without being bucked off of it and stopping somewhere along the way, then get the NIV or the NLT. I have kids that have the NIV and I have uh, some of my daughters that have the New Living Translation. Or go all the way to the message and say, um, you want someone to read the New Testament in the message that's brand new, has never read any scripture, um, but all of these, as long as you understand how you're using them and why, are right in their own way. Does that make sense? So you have different kinds of translations, but underneath all of it is the scriptures that God had written in Hebrew and Greek that become our standard and our canon. Now, the interesting thing I said last week that we're almost becoming a church in exile. We don't live in a culture that shares the same worldview as we do. Interesting thing is that when you see the exile to Babylon, that's when they began to focus the Hebrews the most on the transmitting of the scrolls, the keeping of the scrolls, the copying of the scrolls, the transmitting of the scrolls, so that, that people could come to understand what the books of God said, the books of Moses said. Uh, another book that you might have read was How the Irish Saved Civilization, uh, a famous kind of recent history book, but talking about how one of the ways the Irish kept Western civilization going and re-exported it back to the rest of the West was the monks and the monasteries that were copying the manuscripts, that were copying editions of scripture and other books, church fathers and, and on and on, and that those manuscripts that they kept copying uh, began to be the things that then found their way back into the rest of Western civilization. So exile, interestingly enough, goes hand in hand with a return to the message, the words, the writings that are the standard or the canon, the, the barometer for us as a people of faith. I think this is a time when we as a community can take this and go back with a greater passion and energy and focus into the scriptures and say, how do we keep alive what our faith is, what it's meant to be, and our understanding of God? Where do we look to for authority in that? Does that make sense? It's a fascinating way to do it. We can't serve both God and mammon. And so our ability to go back to the, the authority of scripture and to not have, like we see in the Old Testament, where after they came out of Egypt, went into the promised land, this, these famous words, there arose a generation that neither knew God nor the works of God. And what I'm really trying to argue to us is with our understanding of truth and where it comes from or where we go to find it, that with our passion for that, that it would never be said of this church that there arose a generation that neither knew God nor the works of God. That is why I'm a pastor. That's why I'm here. That's why I give myself to this. That is my hunger, is that we would all be able to come to know God personally, that you wouldn't have to go through me to know God, 
but that you would be getting equipped by me, by Pete, by others, so that you, with scripture, with your prayer life, would be able to find and know and develop an intimate relationship with God yourself, that you might be equipped not only to know him, but to live out the calling that he has for you. Father, I commit myself and this church to you. We don't wanna just be a spiritual group. We don't wanna be set, set aside to any other purpose. Like Jesus prayed, we want to be sanctified and set apart unto you and to your call for us. I pray that you would give us a big heart for truth, a big heart for looking for it, a big heart for for being willing to be wrong, um, a big heart of humility, a big heart of love, a big heart of patience, and give us the ability to be excited once again about the study of Scripture the study of finding your words to us in this book that is more than just a book, but it's a means of grace for us uh, who are your followers, your, your believers, uh, your children. And we pray that in the name of your precious son, the, the, the divine ordering principle, the logos, the one that came from you here so that we could know in him the truth about you. In Christ's name, amen.